Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, December 11th, 2023, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebeck with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Iro, and this week's fish is a sizable sculpin, a fish with a big head. It's the cabazon. Awesome. And I'm very pleased to introduce our guest. We're lucky to have award-winning photographer Keely Yuyan with us for this episode. Welcome. Yeah, great. Thank you. <laughs> you appreciate it. Okay. So one way we can really get to know a fish is through underwater photography. And I'm wondering if you can help us imagine what this fish looks like through the lens of a camera and how you might go about approaching one underwater to get a good shot. Well, usually when I see a cabazon, it's usually gigantic. It's usually an enormous, enormous fish. And it's always by surprise because they got such amazingly good camouflage that you don't really know they're there until you're basically staring them in the eyes. You know, and then oh, you're cool. like, oh, that, that clump of algae or that clump of rock just opened its eyes. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's pretty great. And they're, they're huge. So, I mean, do, I do sort of know where to look because in the Pacific Northwest, we don't have um, a lot of those really big charismatic fishes that um, are swimming around like, I don't know, tuna or, or wahoo or something like that. Mm-hmm. But instead, we do have some really amazing bottom fish and uh, the cabazon is one of them. But when I'm diving, I look at rock piles or look at the top of ships or pilings or wreckage or, you know, just any kind of um, surface. And then typically at the very top of it somewhere or buried in um, a little bit of a hole is this sort of pile of fish that's called a cabazon. And it's it's just a giant head. It's the spiky (laughs) head of a fish uh, with all these funky little nodules and it's just completely camouflaged. The whole fish itself, a lot of the big ones are like maybe three feet long. Um, three feet isn't, it doesn't really give you a sense of how big the fish is because the fishes, I mean, cabazons are like just about as wide as they are long. So mm-hmm. they're, they're a funny shape, right? They're, they're really wide and they're just like a big head with a tiny little tail attached to, to it. Big mouth mm-hmm. um, with a tail attached to it. So yeah, they're, they're very cool fish. I'm curious if you can just kind of take us to the Pacific Northwest. You're going to go on a dive. Like, how are you preparing mentally? You're going to drop into the water. You're going to prepare to maybe see a cabazon or some other species. Can you just like take us there for a few minutes? So when I go to make a dive, basically I have to mentally prepare myself, not for the cold water. The water is cold, Mm -hmm. but because we're wearing the dry suits, it's not really that cold. What I have to mentally prepare for is that I'm going to be wearing this hot dry suit and loaded down with over a hundred pounds worth of gear. So there's oh. all the weights that you need to sink yourself. And then you're stuck inside of this dry suit, which doesn't breathe at all because you're, mm-hmm. that's the whole point. You're not getting wet inside. <laughs> so the wetness that's inside you is also staying with you. And mm-hmm. you put on your tank, which weighs 40 pounds. And then you put on your weight belts and your weight harnesses and you waddle over. And then you pick up the camera, mm-hmm. which is another 40 pounds. And oh you my gosh. waddle over. Yeah, and then you just sort of like tank over to the shoreline and to where the water is and hope, pray that the surf isn't too big. And then you kind of walk mm-hmm. in and then you you drop down into the water, inflate it so that you bob up and you're floating there freely like like a cork. But unfortunately, you don't have a very good way to control yourself and try to put on your fins while you're kind of thrashing around. So it's like very awkward. We finally get your fins on and you're suddenly start to begin that transformation from human to fish. 
you know, sort of that awkward ball where you have no control. Suddenly you have your fins on and then you descend into the water. And as you drop, suddenly you are back into that world where everything is weightless and the weight doesn't really matter that much. And you're able to move around fairly quickly. And then you make that transition between being able to see everything really clearly out for a long distance to not being able to see things very much at all and to really paying attention to details, what's going on and start paying attention to all of the sensations in your body and start paying attention to the information you need to know in your mind, which is the depth and the amount of air that you have in your tank and those kinds of things. You know, and then as you go, it gets darker. Um, the Pacific Northwest has low visibility, which means that the, as soon as you start going down, it gets darker and darker. In fact, at 100 feet on an cl- overcast day, which is most days, you go down and by the time you reach 100 feet, it's pitch black. It's black. Wow. There is nothing. So you need to bring lights and stuff. But you soar around and then a lot of our dives are semi-shallow, 30, 40 feet. And when we get to that place that we can swim around. So there is plenty of ambient light at that depth. We're kind of looking underneath wrecks or rocks, trying to see if there's an octopus down there. And then poke under a rock and hopefully with any luck, we'll find a really cool cabazon munching on the end of an octopus or something like that. Okay. Uh, so who knows? There's all kinds of stuff, but there's, it can be really exciting. Yeah, to yeah. find us a, a giant octopus that's 15 feet long from tentacle to tentacle. Oh my goodness. Two, two humans, yeah, wide, hovering around a nest of its eggs or something like that, or a lingcod, which is swimming around. And sometimes they get really territorial and they rush at you and try to batter you. Or I've had a lingcod grab my leg as I turned around and luckily had a oh thick dry goodness. suit on. And okay. yeah, tried to bite <laughs> me, yeah. <laughs> It's oh trying to gosh. get me away from its nest, which I don't know yeah. that I'm near, but now I know. <laughs> we talk about fishing a lot on the show. And when you're fishing, you really need to understand the behavior of a fish. And I'm guessing when you're underwater, you're doing photography, you're going to see some really neat natural behaviors. And I'm just kind of curious if you've observed any interesting things with how they behave or if they're curious around you at all when you are near them. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, Cabazon, a lot of people would consider it to be a boring fish. But <laughs> as an underwater photographer, you spend a lot of time around boring fish because they don't scare easily. You know, they, they don't swim away easily. And so that actually is really cool. You get a chance to actually observe their personalities a little bit. And they're funny creatures, like in the sense that almost you can sort of think of it as like a, an introvert fish. You know, you're in their space and they're kind of awkward. Whatever spot they're in, they're kind of tucked in there. and They're a little bit awkwardly bent, you know, um, mm-hmm. just kind of stuck there. And you swim up to them and you can see them because they have their eyes open and their eyes are tracking you. So they're, they're watching you. But you can also sort of see they're like, you don't see me. <laughs> you can't tell I'm here. <laughs> it's very, 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 uh, you know, it's like really got that vibe going on. And you swim with a, with a fisheye lens, especially with, when we photograph things, we have to be very close, very close to them. A photograph more than three feet away from something is a, a terrible photograph underwater. And most of the time when we're, we're talking about fish, anything smaller than like a shark we're talking about being less than a foot away from it and sometimes six okay. inches or three inches away from it. So, I mean, you can imagine most things don't let you get that close to them that easily. But cabazons do. Like, they'll hang out there and wait until you're three inches away. You could literally put your lens right up to them. You can't just, you know, swim right at them. 
they will take yeah. off. But if you kind of ease in in the same way where you might be visiting a a relation, <laughs> a family member who's a little bit shy, you kind of just like, you know, you show up in the kitchen and you're like, hey, how's it going? You know, and they don't really want to talk, but you just keep hanging out there in the kitchen. And after a while, they, they just have to endure your presence. And, you know, it's sort of, that's what it feels like. You're yeah. awkwardly in their space, but they won't do anything about it because that's their mode of being in the world. As soon as they move, they've given themselves away, you know, and yep. so they won't move until they absolutely have to. And it, so it makes photographing them actually really fun because you move around them to try to get a good composition. There's often these big anemones around them, metridium mm. anemones or plumos anemones. And some of those are really big. I have a great photograph of one of the cabazon species that is around these anemones. And these anemones are meter tall. They're three feet oh, long. Wow. They're huge and they're white. And, you know, they're just like, there's maybe like a half dozen of them in a circle and the capsons right in the middle of them, you know, and swim up and I'm just trying to look for the right composition and find it set that camera down right in front of it, probably about an inch and a half away, but I'm slowly just creeping up. And as I get closer and closer, those Cabazon's eyes can't really track all the way forward. So you get up close and you're just like, the, the fish is trying to look at you and it can't really look at you. <laughs> you can tell it's getting nervous and a little frustrated. Like, you know, it wants to, um, it wants to turn so it can look at you a little bit better, but it doesn't want to give itself away. It's really funny because you feel ah. that tension that, that yeah. it has. Um, but yeah, they're great. They're great like that. They're really fun to just kind of be around and just sort of uh, hang out with. So these fish have a pretty big range, kind of stretching all the way from down in Mexico, Baja, California, up throughout the Pacific Northwest. Where all have you been able to dive and photograph these and which is sort of your favorite? On the Pacific coast, I photographed from uh, from the north end of Vancouver, halfway of BC, all the way down to Southern California. And yeah, cabazons are around quite a lot. They make really good photographic subjects just because they don't swim away. And you, and you know, uh, it, what's funny is I think that people often think the photographs are about the thing that you're photographing, you know, like the subject of what you're photographing. But when it comes to a lot of wildlife pictures, especially, the photograph is actually not about the animal. It's about the background. It's about where it lives. All of the best photographs, you know, people get these like really long lenses and, you know, top side to photograph bears and you zoom in so much. You get so close to that bear with that gigantic, very expensive lens. And then you photograph this bear's eyeball or its nostril or whatever it is, you know, that, that people are really into. But really, mm -hmm. the photographs that we love to see in National Geographic are not those pictures, right? The pictures that do really well that people love are this grizzly catching a salmon on this river in a huge valley inside of Alaska where you see mountains in the background and the river running and there's whatever fly fishermen like 200 yards down the line and the sun is setting. It's about the environment and the place that it's in, right? The context. And so, yeah, the context, the environment. And, you know, that, that, and that fish or that animal is just part of that story that it's there. You know, when you only have the, the one creature, it's not a very good story. It's not that exciting. And so the same way, like, this is one of the reasons why Cabazon make great photographic subjects, because they hang out there and you can look and Look around to see, oh gosh, is there kelp in the background? Are these rocks arranged in a cool way? Is there these gigantic, amazing anemones hanging out? You know, and, and if you find that, then you know, like, okay, this will make a good picture. It doesn't matter that this is not a sand tiger shark. Like a sand tiger shark in the, in the, big, in the open blue water 
is a boring thing. You know, it's just like not that exciting. People have seen that a million times before, but even something that's like sort of, uh, I don't know, I guess you could call it like charismatically ugly fish. You know, mm -hmm. a cabazon is a charismatic but ugly fish, but if it's in a really beautiful environment, a really interesting environment, there's all this story that's being told. You know, people look at that picture, they're trying to figure out, oh, where does the fish end and where does the reef begin? You know, like, what? I have no idea that all these weird creatures live down here in this place. Like, look at all this stuff. Look at the star, like, there's a constellation of stars in its eyes. You know, mm -hmm. um, when you get up really close, you can see all the little speckles and stuff. It's almost like a little Milky Way galaxy inside. I think people have a really hard time connecting with fish because it's hard to enter their world. So really, very few people are in their world. And I'm curious how you view photography as contributing to conservation, especially for fish, which seem kind of disadvantaged opposed to a lot of the other animals where you can, like, see them in a tree or a bird? Well, I think, I mean, conservation photography is a funny word, and I have a lot of thoughts about that. Because I'm sort of on the, I'm on this spectrum of, of journalists that believes that mm -hmm. conservation always involves human beings and human beings and nature being together, you know, like those things living alongside each other. And a lot of conservation photography is sort of implicitly this idea that humans will always destroy the natural world. And so we should always um, try to preserve nature against humans. We try to put four, four fences around it, stop all fishing, blah, 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 this kind of stuff, you know? And I definitely don't believe that. I think the really good photography actually is stuff that challenges the ways that we view the world. And people today, especially in the United States or Canada, look at the world and they sort of see either the two ways of seeing conservation. They either see that humans and, and the natural world cannot coexist together, that will always destroy each other, or they see no problem at all <laughs> with the way that things are going. And neither of those mm -hmm. things is true. Like, clearly, there were less, um, there was less habitat for animals. There's less animals. You know, there's, what, a third of the number of birds that used to fly around in our world today than there was 100 years ago. So that's a big deal. It's a really big deal. But at the same time, too, I'm a big believer that human beings that fish on a reef are the best protectors for that reef. I see it all over the world. It's a little bit like there, you know, when you live in a place, you get blurred, you get blinded by all the political, all the local, all the people's opinions. But when you go to another place, you're able to see it a little bit more clearly. I can see on a place like Palau, for example, Pacific Island, everyone fishes, they spearfish, they swim around. They have some of the best marine protected areas on earth. And that's precisely because that place is their home and they really love it and they want their children to be able to fish that place, right? It's their home. You know, they, they grew up in it. They're part of it. And so um, I think that photography gives us the ability, especially for urban people, to be able to actually go into a fish's world a little bit and see that place. I mean, I have met, you know, a Palauans, even like, Palau, like the former president of Palau, for example, um, who told me that the first time he went scuba diving, he thought he knew his reef really well. I mean, he grew up spearfishing and he's in the water. He's diving, free diving all the time. But he went scuba diving and he went down to 100 feet and hung out there. And suddenly he was like, oh gosh, I don't actually know my reef. I don't know it as well. Because diving gives me the ability to go to places where I couldn't before and spend time hanging out, you know? And so I think that photography does give people a window into this world that potentially they might not have noticed before. And it gives us a little bit of a different way to look at the world. Like, because we 
it's good to care about the fish that we eat and that we depend on, but it's also good to care about the things that we don't notice immediately. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like sand lances, the little tiny fish that live inside of the, inside the sand that the salmon eat that really, they really need and are very, very important food fish. We don't really think about, about them, even as fisher people don't really think about sand lances, but sand lances matter a lot. And so I think photography gives us the ability to like tell the stories of these things that are food, you know, or that they're part of our existence in this daily way. You're a really good storyteller, not just with the photos, but obviously orally as well. I'm curious, when did you learn that you had this skill or this passion for telling these kinds of stories? What's sort of your background like? Oh, my background is a very complicated story <laughs> as well. I mean, I like everyone, you're not a born storyteller. You learn the skills of how to tell stories. I, mean, I think, though, it does help that I came from a background of where, uh, from a storytelling culture. You know, I'm, I'm of three cultures. You know, my, my grandmother was Nanai, which is Siberian native. My, the rest of my family is Chinese in ancestry, but I largely grew up in the United States. So I'm of these three cultures, but all those things are me. And one of the things that, you know, you develop when you're part of these storytelling cultures, like you grow up with the folklore and the mythology. You know, I, I remember being in the library and both being riveted by like Norse mythology, like what the hell is Thor going to do? But also, you know, at the same time, I would go home and then listen to my grandmother's stories about our transformer hero, whose name is also Kili, um, who would ride on the backs of orcas and sturgeons, you know, and shoot his bow. And then also, my, and then my mom, mom would take over and she would show us a picture book of the stories of Monkey, which is a Chinese fable, you know, and Monkey roams around in the, in the heavens and the clouds with this like magical stick. And all of them, all of those were super freaking cool. I also sometimes kind of still live in all of those worlds, you know, they like made me who I am. And so I think from early on, I, I was really shaped by stories and what they tell me. And at the time, I didn't really understand that stories give you the worldview of the culture that you're a part of. Mm -hmm. This is one of the reasons why I have a really diverse uh, worldview or I'm able to shift a lot of different perspectives, like look, you know, I could see the world as an underwater photographer, but not just an underwater photographer. I can see it as a person who eats fish, and who, who mm -hmm. is part of a culture that eats fish. I can also see it from the point of view of a commercial fisherman. You know, and so being able to shift these perspectives easily is also part of just how I grew up. You've got to like be able to talk to whoever it is that you're in front of I found very early on that it was really important to be able to speak, not only to speak to all of these people, to even just understand where they were coming from. I all of these different cultures. Um, and so I think storytelling is sort of a natural fit, but it's a thing you got to learn how to do. You guys know this as science communicators. Um, science is really complicated and very difficult for lay people to understand, or maybe it's just boring or whatever it is. Learning how to be able to communicate science is such a fascinating thing. For example, recently I discovered that there is a thing, um, I forget what kind of teardrop, there's a certain name for this teardrop, but essentially you take molten glass, you drop it into cold water. And I just it heard about that. Hardest. I was watching yeah, a glass yeah. show. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, it's super and cool. It and it's like the yeah. hardest substance on earth or something like that. You pull it out, there's this crazy teardrop and you can shoot a bullet at it and it shatters the bullet, which is yeah. Insane, right? And that is the that is science right there. But that's a cool way of looking at it, like 
bringing people into the world of science as opposed to talking about um, equations or talking about the laws of thermodynamics or crystalline structures. But the problem is um, science is a really about just like little pieces of things. You know, we look at this chunk, this chunk, this chunk, this chunk, and it's not the way that humans think. We're very holistic. Yeah. Our cult culturally speaking, we're very holistic. We think about the world as like this place that's full of these rules a certain way and things work a certain way, you know? Honestly. I think humans are yeah. drawn to stories too. I mean, that is how we communicate. Uh -huh. And science always exactly. communicates in a very technical way. I think the most important thing as a storyteller is that most storytellers also, there's, we, the world is actually just full of storytellers. We're, we're all around it. Mm -hmm. But a lot of, unfortunately, I think the biggest problem in the world today in a lot of ways is that the stories we tell ourselves are just rehashing of stories things that we already know. It's really difficult to come up with new insights about your world if you're stuck inside of it. You're trying to see yourself from the outside and you're stuck inside of it. You know, this is the sort of quintessential problem. So we have to get out of it. Great way to do that might be to go diving <laughs> or, or to, um, you know, go to another culture. Uh, go to a different place. That's why people love traveling for that same reason. Yeah. So good storytellers do those things and they come back with actual insights. And then that's what makes the storytelling really powerful. Do you have like a running narrative with um, kind of your exploration of the marine environments or the northern climates, just like kind of a story through time? What are you trying to get across to folks with your images? Most of the work that I do is related to indigenous communities and indigenous ways of seeing the world. What I have learned over you know my lifetime, essentially, and especially visiting all these native cultures is to just is that these places are pristine because humans protected them and took care mm -hmm. of them and that some places actually fall apart without human beings. Okay, you know, in Australia, for example, the Australian rainforest, the Daintree, which is the oldest rainforest on earth, it's been burned by human beings so long that, that hundreds of species depend on human fire and without them, they wouldn't be able to reproduce or that they eventually their habitat would, would be gone without humans to light those fires. They've been lighting them for 65,000 years, which is long enough for evolution. Wow. Um, even though I know these things intellectually, I think there's still like a point where uh, I had to just be convinced emotionally. And I remember walking around when we were lighting a fire and there's just these little quiet fires, right? The, uh, the Aboriginal lobs are burning. And we walk around and there's these little flames like a, less than a foot tall, just kind of flickering around. They're not, they're not hot, it's not scary. And we walked, and then one of the rangers spotted this python. And so I walked over to this python. It's this huge carpet python, right? It's like 10 feet long. Mm -hmm. and it's slithering along the edge of the fire. And I was like, what is it doing? And they're like, oh, yeah, you don't know about this. They hunt along the edges of that fire because the rodents are fleeing from the fire. Oh, and, it, yeah. and that's how it gets its food. And I thought, holy shit, that snake has... Not, it hasn't learned it. It's in its genes. It knows that fire is the best place to hunt. It's freaking cool. miraculous. And so I think this is the dominant thing whenever I'm thinking about um, the natural world and trying to get across to people uh, through my storytelling is that human beings and nature together, we have a really long history and we've been manipulating and altering our environments for such a long time. We belong together. We can do it again. But even more importantly, right now, there is a bunch of communities and cultures that still do this. And that's the reason we have natural places at all.
Okay, it's time for a minute with Maria. Maria is calling in from Chogian Lands in Western Alaska and is helping us elevate Indigenous voices and perspectives on the show. Along, everyone. Hi, thanks for having me. Besides the really cool fish that we're talking about, the Cabazon, I really like how our guest is digging into storytelling in this episode. What about what he's saying is resonating with you from where you sit in terms of this storytelling approach we're talking about today? Oh, I just love listening to Keeley talk. He's really a wonderful storyteller. I can kind of tell from his storytelling that he's also a good listener, that he listens to the indigenous people that he surrounds himself with, to the elders in the communities that he's with, and also to the land and the animals. And I'm really appreciative that he's sharing his stories as well. Has storytelling changed since you were a kid here in Alaska? And maybe how is it also the same? Yeah, I think for all of us, our attention spans have shortened with the come up of social media. For instance, here in Chogyang lands, in the Yupik people would tell stories with story knives, and it'd be really descriptive storytelling. And now you hardly see that anymore. You know, I have yet to see a storytelling um, other than outside of the school setting. I would really like for us to kind of hone back those skills and get back to our storytelling nature and our roots. What makes a good story in your mind? Oh, boy. Um, I guess if it has a lesson that I could resonate with, that's a really good story in itself. And something that really can keep my attention and maybe has surprise elements in it as well. Well, good talking to you today, and we'll see you next week. Thank you. We love talking about fish. So when you're a storyteller, there's, especially when you're communicating science, and you hinted at this a little bit, you know, science is this kind of patchwork. You learn little things here and there, and then there's a whole lot of nuance. And when you're telling a story, you kind of got to either come up with ways to bridge these pieces of information or kind of gloss over things a little bit. And I understand that, but I'm curious, how do you put that together? How do you make sure that what you're telling is completely true and honest to the best of your ability while also getting rid of all the technical stuff? How, how do you balance both of those? Yeah, this is a, it's a really good question. And this is one of the quintessential questions in journalism altogether. You know, how do you give people the level of nuance that really exists in the modern, in the real world? You know, things are really complicated. I think that what it is is that there is actually a hierarchy of information. You know, when you're telling a story, if you're a good storyteller, you don't just ramble. You know, just ramble on about whatever comes to mind. And that is how most of the time scientists kind of do things. They just talk about stuff and they get into their yeah technical world. And, you know, we all, we all do it unless we have really trained up. And the thing about it is that it's not easy. Right? So in order to create a hierarchy of, hierarchy of information, you have to decide what is it about this thing that I know that is the most important thing that people need to know. You have to choose. You can't just to say... Everything in my brain, I want to download that to another person. It doesn't really work. You mm -hmm. can't possibly download all the information. You know, you spent 30 years learning this stuff and you were convinced because you were there for it. So what of the things that you know is the most important to impart to another person? And is it going to be useful? Like, is it a surprising piece of information or is there something they already know? Hopefully it's something new, unsurprising, and also very true. And then... We tell them that thing and then the rest of the information, all the nuance that's in there, we develop an argument around how it is. We support it with all the information that we can. 
the main way that you clean up the chaos of communicating difficult things, especially scientifically, is that you have to choose what it is that you're going to say. And you have to be very good. You have to just be kind of ruthless about what it is that you can say realistically. You know, you learned it in 30 years. And if you're going to present it in 20 minutes, I'm sorry, you could only present a tiny sliver that you have to choose. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. And hopefully that it's important information. It's high level information. It's abstract information that's relevant to the other person and their life in some way, or else Mm -hmm. none of it really matters. Yeah. So I got a more, another general kind of photography storytelling question, but, um, so when it gets to me, the consumer, I'm thumbing through national geographic and I see, you know, maybe a dozen, 20 really high quality photos, but how long does it take you to get those? I imagine you're not just going out for a weekend up to, you know, Ukiatvik or something like that, (laughs) getting the good photos and then you're out. Uh, so what's the, how, what kind of timeline are you working on to get these and what percent of the photos actually make the final cut? It really depends on the story. It depends on the story. But if you're talking about the print magazine, which is the sort of highest end part of it, the stories take a really long time. The last story that I did was a two-year story. The one I'm just working on, I just finished the field work on, is a two-year story that I spent 400 days in the field on. Wow. wow. So, um, yeah, to give you an idea of it, I worked on that story and more or less that story and a couple of other small projects, and I'm only home 30 days a year. So I'm on assignment the rest of that time, pretty much. But it gives you an idea of how much time it takes in order to do that. Wildlife stories and culture stories are probably the two that take the most time. Wildlife, because you have to wait for it on its own terms. And then culture, because you have to wait for it on its own terms. And you have to build that trust (laughs) in those relationships. Um, And we shoot a lot. On on any typical like assignment that I'm uh, out and away, if I'm out for a month, I typically would shoot 15,000 to 25,000 images, uh, wow. which we narrow it down to, yeah, between 12 to 20, something like that. Oh, that'd be hard to curate that. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not as bad as you think, but yeah. I know we had talked about kind of which fish you would like to feature when we have you on the show are there i know there are some other ones too like how does this one stand out to you and then what are a few other cool ones that you really kind of have been impacted by in your life i think i have different relationships with different fish based on that particular relationship whether i'm eating them whether i'm photographing them Mm -hmm. and what particular experiences that i've had lately i have to say that i'm really quite mesmerized by sharks i think that a lot of the shark species still, I mean, we know this, especially underwater photographers really generally love sharks and the public is convinced that sharks, well, I mean, you have the two two sides. People, uh, either people think that sharks are going to kill them or that sharks are completely harmless and that we're mm-hmm. killing all of them. And the truth is certainly both of those things. Sharks will kill us occasionally. It's not good to be stupid in front of them, but they've killed very few people in any given year. Yeah. And we do kill a lot of sharks but they're also not harmless and they're, they can be real dangerous, especially to those of us that are around them a lot. And so, but the sharks are just, there's something magical about them. I think the, uh, a lot of ways, the most charismatic animals, the ones that we love the most, tend to be the animals that are both really beautiful and also a little scary. Mm-hmm. And uh, in particular, maybe in the Northwest, I would say dogfish sharks, which is our, our resident shark mm-hmm. that we see a fair bit of, and they're always super fast, and they've never gotten a picture of one because they're really tough. They're not very big sharks, 
they're anywhere from a foot long to maybe three feet long. And they dart around super fast. Um, but it's a really cool shark. It's like you took a really fast open ocean shark, like a blue shark, and you just miniaturized it and made it smaller. And they're wonderful sharks, yeah. even though I catch them occasionally when I'm uh, trying to catch a salmon or a lingcod. And I know fishermen really dislike dogfish. I think they're really cool. I'm like, hey, we have a shark around and it's mini and we don't, we don't have to worry about them. Like, they're so cool. Just swimming around down there doing yeah. their thing. And then you feel their skin and they're rough. Just, uh, just wonderful creatures. Yeah. Any from Siberia or China or your, your cultures? Um, yes, certainly. But a lot of my memories of the, those fish is when I was really young. But we, you know, I grew up with the more, more salmon, which is the largest salmon species in the world. And then uh, also the Kaluga sturgeon, which is the largest freshwater fish, period. And they are unfortunately not hardly any Kaluga sturgeon left. Uh, they come from the Amar River that borders China and Russia and, and even Siberia. So really, really big, 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 big fish, gigantic fish. Like my, my grandmother used to tell me a story of a fish that was bigger than the size of the canoe that, that she was in when she was a kid. Oh, wow. Yeah. So okay. oh my gosh. that's one story I remember really clearly, which is that... And she remembers bringing up this gigantic fish and it didn't really struggle or anything. And it came up and it was bigger than the canoe that she was in. So Dang. it gives you a sense of it. You know, probably that's probably fish that would have been over 12 feet long. This is gigantic. Final question for me. Um, we like to ask this a lot kind of at the end, but why should people care about this particular fish, the cabazon? Oh, that's a good question. I think when you have a fish that is essentially like an apex bottom predator, you have a fish, this is a keystone species in a lot of ways. I mean, those are the fish that is down there that is the big daddy and eating everything else that's small enough to swim around it. And if you took them away, I think you would end up with a lot of strange results. You would end up with a lot of other creatures that are, would change the dynamics of the, the population dynamics of the bottom. But I don't know. I don't know that there's been a specific study or anything that I could point to that says, oh, no, we really need cabazons. I just think that whenever you have a really large species of anything that lives in an environment and there's nothing else quite like it down there, that there's a really good chance that taking it away was going to change that ecosystem a lot. It's the same way that you think that taking away a tiger or taking away a wolf really, really changes an ecosystem. You know, apex predators of a region, that's a big deal for sure. Thank you so much. This was cool. a really fascinating yeah, a conversation about photography and storytelling and also the Capazon. So thank you. Yeah, terrific. And well, thank you guys for having me on. We'll get out there and enjoy all the fish, especially the introverted Capazon. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Race Car. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montekin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. There's that danger element, which really helps.
doesn't explain panda bears. I have no explanation for pandas. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're just real and real adorable.